And I haven't had a bad creative experience. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, the studio missed something. I always got out alive with my film. Now, I, I maybe lost the big war, like they didn't distribute it or they hated me or never wanted to work with me again or, you know, whatever. I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture. Richard Linklater makes movies about people talking. Movies like Dazed and Confused, Before Sunrise, Boyhood. These people are talking to each other and to themselves, getting out of trouble and right back into it. And it's happening across very specific periods of time. The last day of school, a romantic night in Paris, a teenage boy's lifetime. His new movie is called Last Flag Flying and features one of his go-to setups. Old friends reuniting and new ones growing close. And these characters talk a lot. But it's a little different too and a little bit more straightforward than usual. It's about a father, played by Steve Carell, who's reunited with his two buddies, played by Brian Cranston and Lawrence Fishburne. And they came to know each other during the Vietnam War. After Carell's character's son is killed in the Iraq War in 2003, the trio reunite to transport the body back to his home in New Hampshire. What happens along the way in the movie is right at the heart of this story. Linklater and I talked about the passage of time in a career that is now 20 films deep, how to make all that talking he puts on screen interesting, and the perilous state of sexual harassment scandals in Hollywood and the world over. So without further ado, here's Richard Linklater. Today's a great day because I'm joined by Richard Linklater. Sir, thank you for coming in today. Oh, good to be here. So you have a new film. It's called Last Flag Flying. Yeah. How are you feeling about it? Oh, I feel great about it. You know, it was so fun to make. You know, I was working with Lawrence Fishburne, Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, and other other great cast members. It It was just fun. It has something in common with all your other films, which is that it is very much about the idea of time. Now you get this question a lot, but what drew you to specifically this time and this story? Because it's not, it's not a 2017 story. No, no. It takes place in 2003, the first year of the Iraq War. And it concerns these three Vietnam vets. So to me, it was a way – it was based on a book by Daryl Ponixon. And he wrote it a few years earlier. I, I first read it in like 2005. Kind of got obsessed with it. And uh, I think it was just these characters. But, you know, it was these middle-aged guys kind of looking back at – their Vietnam days, and it's also a contemplation of this new war that our country's gotten itself into. Seen through uh, Steve Carell's son has gone over and uh, as a Marine, and uh, you know he's died, and they're going to get his, you know, going to Dover Air Force Base and escorting the body and all that, all the behind the scenes stuff you never see or think much about. Did, had you been wanting to do something about? the Iraq War, Afghanistan, all these ideas, you know. And, and what drew you also to, to Daryl's book in yeah. 2005? It just sort of floated my way. I mean, they sent it to me. One of the exec producers thought, I was just curious if I thought it was a movie. I think other people were kind of saying, oh, it's not really a movie. But I read it and go, oh, three guys on a road trip talking that are pretty hilarious and poignant. I said, that's my kind of movie. <laughs> I, you know, I make guys, I can make that. And it just... It spoke to me. I think at that time, the Iraq War was kind of so fraught. You know, we had – it had been such a mistake. It was – I protested that war before it even started. I think it was painful because I'm old enough to remember – I think the first 14 years of my life was the Vietnam War. You know, every every night on the news, 13, 39 soldiers died today and, you know, it was just, you know, neighborhood older brothers and fathers were in the war. I knew – grew up with guys who lost, you know – I knew a guy who had lost both his father and his older brother in the war. And it was just the backdrop of life. 
and then to get to know more about that work politically and historically and to see what a mistake it was and you know that that whole lesson and to see our country kind of forget that lesson let enough time go by and then kind of get themselves into this Iraq war was so painful and you feel sort of helpless but you know I've got a a wonderful medium, <laughs> expressive medium at my fingertips. So, and like I said, I didn't really have a war movie in me, but this kind of answered a lot of, you know, it's both the anger and the ambiguity of it all, you know, and the, the, we're all kind of put in this weird position as citizens, you know, like you do respect the troops, the individuals, cause you know, they're not the ones calling the shots, but I'll be damned as a citizen if I can't criticize the, the people, you know, deciding to go to war and have wars of choice, you know? Yeah, that, you get this interesting thing. That's never, patriotic in my opinion. Yeah. In the movie, they're, they're the characters, especially the three older characters, are very critical of this thing that they also feel very connected to, yeah. which is not something you see very often, right? People who Well, I don't think you see that. it in fiction, but you see it in life. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the most vocal critics and the people I think have earned that right are service members. People who served, who get out, I think they – they have a special place in that I think they have an authority, but I think as citizens, we all have it. But you get a little close and you realize, oh, it's not a contradiction to criticize. So you mentioned that you obviously grew up with the Vietnam War. Were you in, really influenced by the movies that were made that were reflecting on that war? Oh, I think so. Cinema and war movies kind of – they just go so well together. You mm-hmm. know? War and cinema. I think in the last few years, just as I contemplate this movie for the last 10, 12 years – I really started studying war movies and thinking with the bigger question, not like are they great cinema because they are. They always have good clean story. You know, it's good narratives mm-hmm. and a lot of action and you can be mythic. You can be kind of down and dirty. You know, there's a lot of – you can be funny. You can be tragic and, you know. Those movies in particular are very critical as well. You know, they really – Yeah, a long tradition of, of critiques of war. But the bigger question in my mind was even when you are – critiquing a war or saying war is hell or you're somehow promoting war or I think you're triggering in a young mind kind of this notion of, well, and I use the line in the movie, you know, men make wars, but wars make men. (laughs) You know, that little notion is kind of latent. It's sitting there in a lot of particularly male psyches. And so I was more interested in an anti-war movie that would I mean, there's very few. I mean, I question the notion if there is an anti-war movie, you can have an anti-war message, but do you not support just by depict cinema's powerful. You depict something, you're kind of saying you're legitimizing it. And, you know, most war movies are made by not by former soldiers, you know. Yeah, they're made by movie directors right. who largely didn't fight in wars. A lot of the World War II guys did fight, you know, some of those guys. You know, I trust Sam Fuller <laughs> and people like that. But, I mean, the, here recently, I mean, Oliver Stone certainly fought in Vietnam. And I, I think his movie Born on the Fourth of July is a true anti-war movie. To me, that's very realistic. And uh, I give him, you know, high props for that in the notion of anti-war. Like, oh, wow, maybe that's not a good idea to sign up for that. And uh, I, I don't want to contribute to that. I think I made an anti-war movie that still very much honors the commitment for a person who would put their life on the line for the country. But I think it begs critical thinking. What are you putting your line on, life on the line for, your country or for commanders all the way up to the commander-in-chief's you know, games. One of the things the movie does really well is it shows that 
the people who join the service ultimately become – it feels like they start doing things for each other and less so because of this imagined cause or they, yeah. the, the reason that they join starts to move fade away a little bit and it becomes much more this fraternal yeah. experience. I, and so, and you have, then have to build a fraternal experience with you, the, your cast and the people so that we believe that they have mm-hmm. this connection, right? Yeah, you find that in every war. They, they might sign up with notions of fighting for freedom or their country or who knows. You know, there's a million reasons to sign up. But I think the, a lot of them have this notion of patriotism. As soon as you get there, you realize in the big chain of command, you're pretty you're at the bottom of that, and it really becomes about survival. You know, like anything, there's these big war ideals, but the the mission day to day is little things. You know, just we're going to do this, that. It's just like a job. You're going from here to there. It's very specific in its time and place. And that on that day, you are just trying to survive. You got their back, they got yours. It was fun to get these actors together weeks in advance. And How long do you rehearse? It was a couple of weeks. I usually like a little more, but I think Cranston was on a book tour or something. So we rehearsed early, and then there was a gap in time, and then we got to rehearse some more, and then we started shooting. But it really, these guys really did form those bonds that you felt they knew each other from 30 years ago. And How'd you choose those three guys? You know, it's it was pretty narrow. If you think of the age range they had to be and, you know, that you break it down, there's actually not a lot. But within that lot, there's a lot of great actors. So it was, you know, who do you – you kind of have to feel your way through a little ensemble. So you just try to get the best person. And I was very fortunate. These three guys at the top of my list were – we had about a 30, 33-day schedule. So, yeah, it was great. One of the things that's interesting about it to me is that you have a lot of experience playing with structure, playing with the approach to your movies. This movie is fairly stripped down. It's fairly mm-hmm. straightforward in the approach. You know, how did you decide to do something like that after yeah. <laughs> toying with the shape of things for so long? Exactly. Well, every you know, the more I do this, the more I think it's just storytelling. What story are you telling and what's the most efficient way to tell it? You know, a lot of times I have time structures are become probably in lieu of a lot of plot. I have time as a kind of a narrative device in its own way, mirroring maybe the way days unfold or your mind processes time or something. But this was a much more linear story. It was a road movie. There were other things propelling it forward and a nice little dramatic arc and a resolution of sorts. So I just kind of latch onto that as a storytelling device and go with that. So it, it takes place over not that long, you know, several days. A lot of my movies are under 24 hours sometimes. Is it somehow in any way more challenging to do something that is like straight ahead like this? You know, every movie is its own challenge. You know, every movie, there's something about it making it very difficult. <laughs> what Usually. Was, what was the toughest part about this one? Uh, this one, I say that, but it really wasn't. This was one of the more frictionless films I've made. I don't know why. It just all, you know, we wrap three days early, which never happens on movies. Hmm. I just, we'd get to an end of the day. I'm like, oh, guys, I think we got it. I was saying I'm kind of in my Sidney Lumet phase. I'm just like, no, we just shoot this, that. No, that's how I'm going to, that's what it's going to be. We're very efficient all around. And I think the guys were so, so well prepared. And Yeah, does that come from it being a cast of 
50 something veteran actors. Super professionals at the top of their game. What is more fun for you to be with a relatively inexperienced group and kind of teaching them in real time or to be with old pros? You know, it's it's different. The film I did right before was a youthful, you know, guys in their early 20s mostly. It was a college comedy and it was so fun to be with guys kind of my own age. They get all my references. You know, you can joke (laughs) around. You can... You know, I always said like Saturday morning cartoon references. We could riff on each other's, talk about a lot of things to the uh, the guys who are you know so much younger than me. They don't understand what I'm talking about, or it becomes a lecture. Right. Well, this was a reference to the Secretary of State back then, who you know, or the president, or you know, you're having to kind of lecture them on history, where these guys, I, no lecture needed. We all lived through it. I think in the minds of a lot of people's imaginations, you're still the guy in the back of the car and slacker, you know, that that's how they see you. <laughs> but, you know, if I, I assume to the cast of Everybody Wants Some, you are sage, Oscar-nominated, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, legacy filmmaker. That's been the harder thing to get a, psychologically. Like, yeah. for the longest time, I was the striving up-and-comer kid, you know. You feel that way, but pretty soon you start meeting people. Oh, I saw your films when I was in high school, and they're like, "Really?" <laughs> or you, <laughs> How do you, you know, like, that? "Oh, you know." And then some executive at a studio is like, "Oh, yeah, in college you were my," you know, like, yeah. "Okay, I'm the old guy in the." I might be one of those guys in the I'm room. Sorry to say. Yeah, well, it it's just it's mathematics, yeah. you know. <laughs> Basically, it's gonna happen. It helps. I live sort of in a outside the system to such a degree that I I don't. None of that never gets reinforced unless I'm in production or depending on who I'm around in the industry, which is pretty minimal. So it does hit you every now and then you look up and go, oh, okay, I'm the senior person on this panel or in this room or, you know, it's okay. It's okay. There's an upside to that too where when you're young, you really have to prove yourself over and over. It seems like every movie, it's not uncommon for an executive or someone just to assume you have no idea what you're doing. And you're even saying, hey, you know, this is my fourth film or my fifth film. I'm kind of good at this. I know what I'm... They still treat you like you don't. Whereas now you have a lot less friction, I guess. I think this is 20 for you, right? Yeah, 20. Yeah, I'm I'm editing my 21st film right now. So (laughs) is it easier for you to, to get movies made now? Well, I think that's a product of the system right now. Seven years ago, I would have said no, but so would have every filmmaker in the world at that time because mm-hmm. it was a real – we were sort of in between the cracks, I think. The film industry, something had ended and something new hadn't started yet. So right. it was a just a desert of financing and they d- didn't – it was kind of lean times. I still made movies through that. I haven't um, – been inactive, but it's it's just so difficult. I mean, there was just like I said, this movie was frictionless because I had just enough of a budget and schedule. Where I did films, you know, not that many years ago, where the ambition of the film, I did several in a row, where I was just like exhausted and so challenged because the scope and ambition of the film so far exceeds your actual budget and schedule <laughs> that every day is just a hustle. You know, it's just really some more difficult than it had to be. But I'm now happy there's just a little more money around, a little more more entities making films. My last few films have been at um, Annapurna, um, Megan Nelson's company, and um, this one was at um, Amazon Studios. And so there are all these new, you know, then there, obviously there's the Netflixes and the, you know, of the world. So it's a much 
better time right now. Is it easier for you personally to make films? On the set, like in my day-to-day? Well, even thinking? conceiving them. I feel like conception is a big part of your, oh, yeah. you know, your process, too, you yeah. know, for lack of a better word. The, the idea is always a thing. You know, sure there's a is. sentence in your films that you're like, oh, he's doing it this so way. So many films I make are – the conception usually comes years and years like ago. But I'll have a big idea, but it takes me years to kind of craft that idea and think about it. Or, you know, often there's a 10-year gap there. So the good news is I have a bunch of ideas and things – I you know, a big stack of scripts and things I'm working on. So I think I'm – overwhelmed way into the future with with film projects and stories I want to tell and things so but a lot of these I'd say three of the last four movies I've done have been long gestating you know something like this it's 10-year gestation everybody wants them the one right before same thing about a 10-year gap between wanting to get it made and actually getting it made boyhood obviously we shot it over a short time from conception to shooting but then a long conceptual shoot the before series obviously has its own big conception behind the whole thing that's 20-whatever years old at this point. So, yeah, movies are – I think it really lives and dies at that very first idea. I think you have a lot of ideas and the ones that sort of fl- flitter away are probably the ones you shouldn't make. You know, they're not – they don't have the depth or they're not that interesting or funny. Maybe there's a lot of clever ideas and there's obviously a million stories we all encounter – just a ton of stories every day of our lives that could be a movie or, you know. But it's like, well, what should be a movie? Two different things. And so or what should be a movie that I want to spend that kind of time and effort and resources and and live with it the rest of your life, you know? So it's nothing you take lightly. The idea has run through the gauntlet of my mind for years before I'm actually doing it. I wonder, you know, you've been creative about how to execute ambitious ideas before so scanner darkly or boyhood these in a different with a different filmmaker in a different environment those could be expensive or elaborate productions and you've managed to do them in your in your specific grounded way is is there something that is a bigger and above that that you've always wanted to do but have not either been able to or had Hmm. the time or not so yeah do i have any like grand epic films in my head that i haven't I do, but they're kind of big stories, and there's something I've been working on for about 20 years. But I'm realizing now, and it's good timing, that that film I had in my head that just keeps sprawling and growing, and you know, I'm doing research. It's a big historical thing. But you know, when you realize it's over 10 hours long, you have to go, okay, well, you know, I'm living in the age of there's what a great network? form for that, you know, long-form storytelling. How do you feel Mo- about the prospect of doing something that big? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm excited about telling a pretty lengthy, multi-character thing. And you know, movies have a a pace you have to kind of adhere to. You know, the format, the feature film format. I love it. It's how I think, but it's it's kind of strict in its own way, pacing and hooking an audience in. I think TV, kind of one of the beauties of it is you can kind of hang out with it and get to know people. And it's kind of what I do in film. Yeah. And I've had. Believe me, I've had networks and presidents and people saying, you know, your style is – you would be very good at TV because you just, <laughs> you know, dialogue. And be, I go, I know, I know. I just haven't – don't have the idea. Yeah, you mentioned <laughs> earlier that your three guys talking on a road trip is your kind of movie. And yeah. I think a lot of people perceive that as like that's that's my kind of TV show. I know, or, yeah. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong era because 
like when people say, oh, I want to go to a movie that like, well, let's go to Star Wars or mm-hmm. Thor or, you know, big movies. Yeah. Big, you know, big is movie theater, intimate, human, adult is TV, which I so disagree with. But you can't – people are sort of training them, themselves into this niche. So studios certainly believe that. Aside from your general ability to make films, do you have any anxiety about the fact that the culture is moving in that direction? Uh, I don't know if it's anxiety. The film industry has always sort of shifted around and adapted to changing times. So I, I guess on on some specifics, yes, like are people still going to go to theaters to watch, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then on the bigger meta picture level, no, because stories, you know, like humans need stories. We need to reflect ourselves. We need to contemplate our world and through people and you know so on the big picture no i don't something's never going to change but on the technical specific you know year to year uh consumer habiting you know whatever yeah that's always a little scary but i've seen that change over the years too you still go to the movies a lot uh try to but i'm i'm part of that demographic got two 13 year old daughters you know do you, you know family life you know do you rewatch your own films Never like alone on my own, but um, every now and then there'll be a reunion screening or something. Well, usually it's a benefit for mm-hmm. somebody. I don't think on my own I would I would do that, but I'm not averse to it. You know, I know some people never, but I always remember the experience, not mm-hmm. so much the film. But I'm one of those guys who's okay with everything. <laughs> you know, like I I, I know I just. Hey, I worked hard. I gave it my best. I did my best. I'm okay. I don't beat myself up over. Is there any one early that, that you would potentially be like? I would have done this differently. I think I always adjusted to circumstances. Sometimes circumstances weren't exactly how I would have liked, and you can only bend things to your will to whatever degree. But no, I got no complaints. No takebacks. Yeah, really, truly, and I haven't had a bad creative experience. You know, a lot of people like, oh, the studio messed with me. I always got out alive with my film. Now, I, I maybe lost the big war. Like, they didn't distribute it or they hated me or never wanted to work with me again or, you know, whatever, just by kind of sticking up for my own film and not doing their dumb notes or, you know, whatever. You can kind of sometimes you make the film with the wrong entity. That's what happened actually just on Everybody Wants Some. I was making it at Paramount Studio, which. They didn't really want to make that film at all, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't let me take it to a more appropriate place. So we made it anyway, and I'm super grateful and glad I got to do that. But then at the end of the day, they didn't care about it. You know, they didn't – they had nothing to say about it. They just didn't really release it. You know, so it's a frustrating experience for all of us who put everything we had into it because the bigger entity that owned it, Paramount, was didn't care about it. I, I've, I've even said this on last vlog. I was like, hey, we had a great experience. We had a good cast. I think we made the film we set out to make. We all feel good about it. Who knows? You know, it's now it's out of our hands, you know. So I, I never got to – I guess that's kind of the part of me, the former baseball players. Like, hey, you know, I hit the ball hard four times today. I, only, I, I didn't get a hit, but I hit it right at second. But, you know, so you just do your best and you figure the odds are with you that – It'll all in the long term be okay, but you you can't get too obsessed about the results because they're really largely out of your hands. Everybody wants them as a great example because at this place where I work, you know, we cover sports and popular culture. That's mm-hmm. literally what we do here. 
So that movie came out, I think you're right that maybe it was not marketed aggressively enough and not enough people saw it right away. But I think if you went into our office and asked people, they'd be like, well, that's one of my favorite movies the last five years. And <laughs> it may not have arrived until a year later for them or two years right, later. Yeah. And I feel like that's true of a lot of your films. You know, a lot of people, when they get their hands around them, they're like, man, I'm obsessed with this. Oh, it's sweet. I, I do like that. I, I appreciate that. And that's been largely my uh, <laughs> my career has been largely theatrical underperformance and long-term pickup people who appreciate what, what what it was. So I got used to that a long time ago. Yeah. And it's great when that happens. And I'm, I'm glad it's happening for that film because I really thought that was a wonderful cast and th- all those guys were so fun. And it, it is, you know, I was proud of it as a sports movie. Yeah. How do you, you know? so how do you receive when people <laughs> are like, man, that movie you made 11 years ago is the best movie, you know? Yeah. That's always the backhanded compliment. It's like, <laughs> hey, I really, you know, you meet someone's like, oh. Well, that was. A, I'm glad you liked that film. That yeah. was. I know, caught Bernie on Showtime last night. What'd you think? That was yeah. 17 years ago for me, and you know, <laughs> 14 films ago. I've done a lot since then. I'm happy with, but I'm glad you liked that film. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's it puts you in a weird spot. You know, I've I've done that to filmmakers when I meet them because mm-hmm. you want to tell them the thing that changed your life, or you, then you realize, oh, they're really focused on what they're doing right now, <laughs> like yeah. we all are. Who can't be? So, no, nah, I'm, I'm cool with it. If anyone likes a certain film, that, that's cool. And, and the films are pretty different. Different people like – I don't think anyone can like all of them. One thing, though, that you do is you return to characters and you – there is a there is a universe. There's an interconnected and expanded Richard Linklater universe, right? And so <laughs> the before films, obviously, Maybe. they do that. Even Everybody Wants Some spiritual sequel to Dazed. Yeah, those are definitely – there's all kinds of twists and turns and connections. I think how could there not be? You know, you're, I'm ex, I'm one of the f- few directors who say, yeah, that's autobiographical. That was my freshman year of college. Yep, that was my high school. Yep, that was meeting a girl for the first, you know, on a road trip and having an incredible night together. I, I'll say these things happen to me. This is what I'm trying to explore. You know, so I'll be upfront about that. So when you're working from a, such a personal vein, you're gonna kind of loop back around to. To characters and stories and, and things like that. So I guess it's natural. Have the questions started about the next before movie? Yeah. Between the first and second movie, no one ever asked <laughs> if they were ever going to be another movie. Sure. But then you make a second and it's like, oh, yep. you must really believe in yourselves. You make a <laughs> sequel to a film that didn't make any money. <laughs> the lowest grossing film to ever spawn a sequel. You must. Okay. And then they, they kind of liked that one. And then it was like, Oh, you did a third one? And that one, we got more questions about, oh, is there going to be a third? I see a trend here mm-hmm. every nine years. So we're really begging for it now, having done three. And we're kind of at that five-year mark. We shot that five years ago. It usually took about five years for us to have an idea mm-hmm. for another one. You know, like, oh, what are Jesse and Celine doing? But uh, that hasn't really happened yet. Who has to start that conversation? Any of us. Usually it all starts around the same time. We're coming from different places. Like, they're in it. They're the age of their characters. I'm roughly 10 years older. So I'm thinking back now, thinking in this case, if they got back together, it'd be kind of, they'd be 50-ish, you know. Oh, that's an interesting spot of life. You know, what's going on? But the the big idea hasn't hasn't hit us. What's it like to share kind of creative credit? You know, I was thinking about this even with Daryl and writing this movie together yeah. versus something like Everybody Wants Somewhere. It's wholly yours, and you get to say, this is autobiographical. Is there something different in that equation? Not really. I mean, by the time you're making a film, it's very personal. Mm-hmm. Even if you're making a period piece for time you never lived. You know, I was doing a film 
uh, me and Orson Welles about 10 years ago. You know, it's set in 1937. It's the Mercury Theater. It's all that. But I was like, yeah, I probably never have a film to make about making a film, or maybe I do. But make putting on a play, I have a lot to say about that, you know, the ensemble. So, you know, it's very personal, although I'm trying to be very historically accurate. By the time you're making something, it's, it's pretty, um, you know, it was based on a novel, like other, uh, certain other things I've done. So by the time you've adapted it or you've rehearsed it and you've worked with the actors forever, you've gone through all this, it's, it's super personal. So I kind of don't make a distinction at the so, risk of doing the thing I just was describing yeah. to you before, I just saw me and Orson Welles, and I really liked. Oh. I had never seen it. <laughs> oh I was yeah, like, oh, this is a little. You're not alone. I know. Um, um, yeah, that's another one that yeah. that we did that internationally. Shot it in London, very New York movie, but we shot it in London and international cast. And I was so happy with that movie, but another heartbreaking, yeah. bad distribution kind it's of. It's a thing. really good film, though. I think it's one of my best, actually. Yeah. And I'm not saying that because it's little scene. Mm-hmm. I really do. Yeah, I love that film. Love the experience and. So let me let me ask you as somebody who's been in the business for this long and has been a you know bastion of indie cinema too I I'm curious how you feel about what's happening in the industry right now obviously the sexual assault allegations and oh, everything that man. is so crazy right now They're horrible horrible I just I, the only good thing about that is that maybe this is a new day where people can come forward and what what's so heartbreaking is you see over and over people have been abused the reluctance to step forward, the the fear of power, and this isn't that's that's just the way power operates and takes advantage of people. And I just don't you just hate like bully behavior or people who are abusing that. That's horrible. So I really think um, we're at the age we're at a new level where the abusers can be. When you hear this went on for eight years or twenty years or thirty years, you're just like, oh shit. How can that, you know, so there just has to be a way. And this is, I think our industry gets it because you're talking about famous people and, you know, the Hollywood and all that. But this is everywhere. Mm -hmm. This is in every industry, every um, sector of our society, you know, restaurants, any office. And, you know, all these places have HR departments that work to whatever degree. But our industry is particularly vulnerable because a lot of the people being abused, they're not technically employed. You know, it's aspirational. You know, people are and, – and young people are really uh, vulnerable. Right. You're an intern or you're on a contract yeah. or you're aspiring to something. Yeah, and yeah. so the, the, the predator, the most dangerous person in our society, whether they're a Catholic priest or mm-hmm. – you know, you see how smart and creepy they can be like, oh. They're not going to report me because, mm-hmm. you know, like, ooh. So there just has to be a place where people can come forward in a way that's not risking their um, – maybe anonymously, but detect a pattern, a behavior and, and nip it. Because, you know, frankly, these these people who abuse people or abuse their power like that, they're never the good – they're, they're bad for everybody. They might be abusing people sexually, but people of the other gender, they're, they're not good to work with. Right. They're the worst people. They don't pay their bills. What is it? It's <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you know, these, what about these ill-mannered guys from Queens <laughs> who have power issues, who abuse women and really demean men? They don't pay their bills. They're horrible in business. They're always suing people. You know, Trump and Harvey Weinstein are really similar and they get away with it forever because we, we all stoop to power 
We're all kind of intimidated by it. We're all the culture leans, worships money and power to such a degree. And when everyone's on the payroll, they become your enablers. It's just a horrible, toxic system that uh, needs the best thing is, you know, if enough people get together, you can kind of bring down the bully. Do you think it's a, a dungeon gate up now and, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity to keep speaking out? Or do you think that we will recede somehow back to old habits? Uh, I hope not. I don't think it all has to be so public even. You know, I think there could be some mechanisms within the every industry to just, you know, get rid of the uh, – Get rid of the bully predator mm-hmm. should be a mantra for our whole society. We could start at the top. I think many <laughs> of us would welcome yeah, that. Yeah, but you know, let's get rid of it because these aren't good people. You know, I, I've read books on like psychopaths and sociopaths and I'm kind of interested because I'm like we have a very small – the way we interact, you know, people are very mind-wired for cooperation. People are good. You know, they really are. But it's the – the system sort of is idealistic and we trust it, everyone to operate by the same rules. That's the flaw of capitalism and free markets to, to, to unregulated because there's too much room for the sociopathic elements that people to game the system. I mean look at Facebook. They, they pretend to be neutral but clearly bad actors, dark elements can use it for horrible – um, means and it's society set up that way too for the way people interact. We have a kind of a good faith feeling out there, and and it's there to be abused by the evil, you know, the the psychopath. So it's vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. There's not that many sexual abusers, but they're very prolific. Mm-hmm. The average like sexual assault person who commits sexual assaults. I read this insane statistic. You think, how many do they commit in their lifetime? You I think don't know. 12, 14, 400. Oh. So you have one person ruining 400 lives. You really have to get that person. Don't get everybody. Get that person. Get, let's get that guy because, mm-hmm. again, they're bad people and it's compulsion. It's, it's not like they grew up and wanted to be that person. They just are. You know, you can actually test for it. I don't know that ethics of putting an asterisk by the person who tests on the sociopathic scale. But, uh, you know, they will – they unfortunately head to the top of a lot of industries because they have this unerring confidence because it never crosses their mind that they're anything less than just perfect and great people, which sounds like a good Wall Street leader to me. That's right. Uh, Or maybe a president. A lot of confidence. Let's make him CEO. He's, I don't like him. I don't want to be on a camping trip with him. But damn it, he's confident. And like this is so bad. We need to – it's just why are we mind-wired to like these people? Sorry I'm going off on this, but it's been on my mind a lot. No, it's – I mean it's the most important story in the business that you work in and at the world at large but it's, too. So. It's, it's horrible. We need to recalibrate what we're attracted to. Let's get much more – a cooperative, someone who's not so sure of themselves is maybe good, someone who wants to build a coalition and read evidence and reach out to everybody, you know, not just someone who's blindly moving forward saying, damn it, you know, this is the way I see it. You Felt know, like so. we were living in that world not too long ago. I know. Yeah. Let me ask you one more much sunnier question. Yeah, please. Thank you. Sorry I went on a rant. I just no, haven't. It's important and know. I appreciate it. <laughs> What's the last great thing that you've seen? Wow. The last great movie. I don't know. I 
I'm actually hosting a series of 80s movies in my film society. What are you most seen, excited seen, to show? I've seen a lot of great. I'm going to show John Huston's The Dead. And it's just a beautiful contemplation of who we are versus who we think we are and how we see ourselves in the world. And there's a certain sadness to it. A beautiful last film by a guy who had lived a long life and was still expressing himself to the end with that kind of bittersweet edge, you know, to everything he did. So hooked up to a, I found it inspiring too. He's kind of dying of emphysema, hooked up to an oxygen tank. I have a picture on my wall actually of Houston getting oxygen but making a movie. I said, that's how I want to be. If I'm lucky enough to live a long time, I want to be hooked up to a machine making a movie in my 90s. <laughs> Don't go anywhere anytime yeah. soon, man. Keep you know what I mean? Movies. You know yeah. what I mean? That's that's the goal. I want to be still having something to say when I'm super old and trying to you know, say it. You know, that would be great. But you never know. Life is – never know what awaits. Richard Linklater, thank you for doing this. So, oh, yeah. Good talking to you. Thanks again for listening to my conversation with Richard Linklater. Please tune in next week. It's going to be a very exciting one. We're going to have two episodes, one at the top of the week with Greta Gerwig, the writer-director of the great new movie Lady Bird, which I highly recommend everyone see, especially before this conversation. And then after that, I'll be joined by a couple of uh, Ringer staffers, and we're going to be talking about superhero movies. So please check that out. 